It's such a joy for me and my family to be here with you, worshiping our great God who saves sinners like us. Uh, we praise God regularly for the work that he has done here at Grace Sharjah and the work that he continues to do. We pray that it would only increase and that our God would be uh, magnified by your very lives. Uh, well, this morning, we want to think through one simple question. We want to think through one simple question, and that question is, what is the way of salvation? What is the way of salvation? Or put it another way, simply, how can we be saved? How can we be saved? And it's a question that's honestly been asked by many people all around us. Many religions really just seek to answer that question. Some would say, follow the Eightfold Path. Others would say, follow the five pillars of Islam. Maybe others would simply say, love God and love neighbor. Do this. Don't do that. And then you will have salvation. Well, our passage this morning deals with a man with that very question. And we will find out that the way of salvation can never come from us. This morning, I want us to see that the way of salvation can never come from us. Turn with me to Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So, likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Let us pray together. Father, would you help us see that we have failed miserably at loving neighbor? that we have not loved you in a way that, that overflows 
into loving our neighbors well. We have been slow to be compassionate, slow to action. And we confess that we are in desperate need of grace. We thank you that there is one who has fulfilled this good Samaritan, and it is your son. We thank you that there is a greater salvation found in him that could rescue us from your judgment, not only that, but change us into a people that love as you have loved us. So do this, we pray, through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, to help us think through our passage this morning, we'll split our passage into three points. These will be the three points of our sermon this morning. Number one, the demands of the law. The demands of the law. Second, the foolishness of justification. The foolishness of self-justification. And third, the transforming mercy of God. So one, the demands of the law. Two, the foolishness of self-justification. And third, the transforming mercy of God. So first, the demands of the law. Look with me at verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? In this verse, we, we learn that there's a lawyer. A lawyer's come to Jesus. Now, this lawyer isn't your legal lawyer that we often think of. No, this is a lawyer of the Jewish law. Here is someone who knows the religious law, the law of Moses, really, really well and has been trained in it. So this lawyer is seen as a religious authority. Right? He's a teacher of that very law. And it is this lawyer that comes to Jesus with a question. Right? But we know that this question really doesn't come from a heart of wanting to know the answer. He doesn't really want to know the answer, the true answer to his question. How do we know this? Well, Luke tells us about his heart in verse 25, right? Look at verse 25 again. And behold, a lawyer stood up. Why? To put him to the test. The lawyer didn't care about the real answer. What was his aim? His aim was to simply test Jesus. He hopes perhaps this question would catch Jesus off guard. Uh, Maybe Jesus will say something that will allow the religious authorities to condemn Jesus. And so he asked the question. You see again in verse 25, what's the question? Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, what is eternal life? That's a good question to ask. Eternal life is simply life with God. Life with God. Specifically for the Jews, eternal life was the idea that you would reign eternally with God. It's the eternal reign of God and the eternal reign of his people with their God. Jesus in the Gospel of John, helps define eternal life for us. So this comes from John 17, verses 3 to 4. John 17, verses 3 to 4. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So what is eternal life? 
It's knowing God. It's knowing God. It's knowing the one that you and I were made for. It's being in a restored relationship with our very creator. It's living in his presence and living in his kingdom forever and ever. And we find out this lawyer wants to know, what can I do to get that? What can I do to ensure that I will be with God forever? What can I do to know 100% that I have eternal life? Or put simply, what can I do to be saved? It's a good question. It's a really, really good question. In fact, it's the most important question that you and I can ever ask. So, children... Children, I I wonder if you're here, if you've ever actually honestly asked yourself that very question. This is more important, children, than what the next toy you're going to get for your birthday is. It's more important than being up with the, the current trends that's going on in your schools. If you're here, you're a teenager, it's more important than what's going on on social media. It's more important than asking how you can be most successful in your life. It's more important than finding out how you can be liked by those around you. There are so many questions that you can ask in life, children, but none are more important than this question. My non-Christian friend, this is also an important question that you should ask. It's more important than knowing what to invest in. It's more important than knowing how to build your career here in the UAE is more important than knowing how can you earn more money. It's even more important than how to be a better person. J.C. Ryle helpfully writes these words. It is a question which deserves the principal attention of every man, women, and child on earth. We are all sinners, dying sinners, and sinners going to be judged after death. How shall our sins be pardoned? Wherewith shall we come before God? How shall we escape the damnation of hell? Whither shall we flee from the wrath to come? What must we do to be saved? These are inquiries which people of every rank ought to put to themselves and never rest until they find an answer. Well, look at Jesus' answer to this very question. Verse 26. And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Jesus answers the question by giving the lawyer a question. He asks him a question about the law. Jesus asks the lawyer, what does God's law say? You've studied it. You understand it. What are the demands of the law? And the lawyer gives his answer in verse 27. Look with me there. And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. So in these verses, we we get a combining of two different Old Testament texts. The first one comes from Deuteronomy 6.5, where God's word says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. The second part of the Lord's answers comes from Leviticus 19.18. This is what that passage says. You shall not take vengeance 
or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so Jesus responds and answers the man's question. Verse 28. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. What are the demands of the law? Verse 27. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. That means, the demands of the law means that you and I are to love God perfectly with everything that we have, right? The demands of the law for us means that we are to completely obey God from the womb to the tomb without any stain of sin, without any form of idolatry, without any tainted desires or selfishness for self-glory, all of life is meant to be lived out in obedience and to the praise of God. Right? And the second part, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That is to, to live in the service and care of those around us, to sacrifice for them. Not just the people that you like, not just the people who are like you, but to love and care for every single person in need around you as you are able to. Perfect love for God and perfect love for neighbor. That's what's demanded by the law. Perfect love for God and perfect love for neighbor. Oh, do you see the demand of the law? It's not merely doing well in comparison to someone else next to you. The demand of God's law is not that you're better than the person on your right or your left, or that you're better than your coworkers at work or school. No, we must be perfect as God is perfect. So Jesus tells the lawyer, lawyer, you want to earn salvation by the law? Right? You want to earn salvation by the law? You want eternal life on your own? Do what you've said. Do it, and you will, in fact, live. Right? Verse 28, Jesus responds, And you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Now, Jesus makes this statement here to help the lawyer see the foolishness of his question. Jesus wants the lawyer to see, and he wants us to see, that we don't match up that we don't match up. We haven't done this, and we have never done this, and we never will do this because we've already failed in our sin. We have failed to keep the law, but that doesn't happen. The lawyer still doesn't understand, and we see that in our second point, the foolishness of self-justification. Look at verse 29. Look at verse 29. But he... Desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus. Right? The man doesn't understand still. He doesn't see himself rightly. He, he doesn't see his need for forgiveness or salvation. He doesn't see that he's sick, poor and needy, dead in rebellion against God. No, he thinks he's okay. He thinks he's passed the test with flying colors. Right? We know that because Luke tells us why he asked the question, right? Verse 29, 
But he, desiring to justify himself. What is at the heart of this lawyer? He wants to justify himself. He wants to declare himself righteous before God. He wants to show everyone around him and God himself that he is, in fact, blameless before the throne of God. And so to make sure, he asks a question. And what's that next question? Verse 29, and who is my neighbor? See, this man wants to find the loophole, right? Jesus, I know I'm called to love my neighbor as myself, but who exactly is my neighbor? Who do I have to love as myself? Because Jesus, I can assure you, I love God's people. I am a Jew after all. I am a keeper of the law. I love your people as myself, 100%. I love God's people as I love myself. Isn't that enough? Do I have to love the pagans as well? Do I have to love false worshipers as myself? Even the tax collector, Jesus? Surely you don't mean the tax collector. Surely you don't mean I have to love sinners as myself. Surely not. That's the gist of what he's asking. See, this man wants to show himself blameless and righteous before God. But do you see that in order to do that, he has to bend God's rules? He has to adjust God's standards? In order to justify himself, this man has to lower God's righteousness and perfect standard. And this is what we do anytime we try and justify ourselves before God. Right? We lower God's standard. Right? And anytime we lower God's standard, we try to justify ourselves before God, we make a mockery of God and his justice. So I wonder, what ways are you and I tempted to justify ourselves? In what way are you tempted to try and make yourself righteous before the holy God of heaven? Maybe it's trusting in your own holiness. Maybe it's trusting in your own self-control. Maybe you've come to trust in your own Bible reading and your church attendance. Maybe you've come to trust in your prayer life. Maybe you've come to trust in your theology and doctrine. Again, these are not sinful things. These are good things. And in fact, they should mark a follower of Christ. But the point of these things are to drive us, not to trust in ourselves, but to trust in the one who saves. I wonder if we've trusted in them. Oh, or another good question is, in what ways have we bended God's law and still trying to call ourselves righteous? Do we bend the law of God in order to fit our own desires and our own desires to look righteous? Right? Maybe what only matters is what's on the outside, what people see. And what they do in secret, that doesn't really matter. Right? We bend God's laws. Well, it's in the context of this self-justifying lawyer, Jesus tells us the parable of the Good Samaritan. Look with me at the response of Jesus and the parable he replies with. Verse 30. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among the robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, 
leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And so likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. So in this parable, Jesus tells us of a man who's going from Jerusalem to Jericho. This is about 27 kilometers. Uh, Now the road between Jerusalem and Jericho was known as a dangerous road. It it winded through barren land surrounded by caves. And and often in these caves there were robbers, right? Because they were perfect hiding spots for robbers to hide in. And so they would be ready to pillage and steal from travelers traveling this road. And Jesus tells us that's exactly what happens, right? Verse 30, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. So these robbers strip him, they beat him, they leave him half dead. The fact that they took his clothes from him meant that no one could really identify who he was or where he was from. So here is a man half dead, helpless on the road. Clearly a man in desperate need of help. And Jesus proceeds to tell us three different men who see him. Right? Here, here are the three different men. First we see a priest. First a priest. Verse 31. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So we learn of a priest who passes by. Most likely the priest has just finished his priestly duties in the temple in Jerusalem and going back home. He happens to see this man who's half dead. And what does he choose to do? He decides not to help. In fact, he avoids the man as much as possible, not even walking by him. He, He walks on the other side. Now, the priest could have done this for numerous reasons. He could have feared for his safety, right? Perhaps it was the fear of, if I stop, I might be robbed, right? It could be the fact that he's unsure whether this man was really dead or not, fearing that he would make himself unclean if he touched a dead man's body. Jesus doesn't tell us the reason why, but one thing is clear. Here is a priest who seemed, who would be a proclaimer of Uh, to love God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength, right? A servant in God's very temple. He sees a man in need, and he simply ignores him, despite his declaration of a love for God. And then we're told of a second man, right? Look at verse 32. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now we... We don't have a priest, but a Levite. Uh, What's the difference between a Levite and a priest? Uh, A Levite was someone who wasn't born 
uh, in the priesthood of Aaron. So they too worked in the temple. They were more like temple assistants, right? He probably had the same reasons to avoid the man as the, the priests earlier, but the same thing still stands. Here we have another worker in the temple, someone who also would have said, we love God, I love God, and sees a man in need, and he chooses to avoid him. Jesus then shows the hypocrisy of these two men, right? Jesus wants us to see the hypocrisy, the hypocrisy of these two men. Though they professed a love for God, their love for neighbor actually evidenced no love for God at all. Right? Though they professed a love for God in their roles as a priest and a Levite, their love for neighbor actually showed they had no love for God at all. So then we have the third character. And it's a rather surprising character. It should shock us. And it certainly shocked the lawyer. Right? We would assume the next man is a Jewish man who actually loves God and actually loves neighbor. But he's not. Look at verse 33. But a Samaritan... Samaritan, when he, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. The third character is a Samaritan. Now, to understand the shocking twist in this story, we have to understand the cultural baggage here. See, the, the Samaritans were hated as enemies of the Jews. They were despised. Why? Well, because they were thought to be half-breeds. They were half-breeds. They weren't truly Jewish, right? They, they were Jews who had intermingled with the Assyrians while they were in exile. So they, they are Jewish people who decided, we're just going to marry. It doesn't matter, matter if they're part of the people of God. We're just going to marry the, the people who are in the land that we've been exiled to. So they weren't Orthodox Jews in any way, but traitors who betrayed Israel and the Lord. After all, the Samaritans didn't even worship in Jerusalem, but worshipped on Mount Gerizim. And this animosity was known on both sides. And yet, that's who Jesus uses as the third person in this parable. A Samaritan, an enemy. And what does a Samaritan do? Well, verse 33. And when he saw him, he had compassion. This man shows compassion. He was moved to pity for a helpless, needy man. And this compassion actually moves this man into action. Right? He didn't just simply think, oh, poor guy. Man, he looks really in need of help. I feel so sorry for him. And does nothing. No, he felt a need and he does something about it. Right? Verse 34. And he went to him, right? He saw the helpless state of the man, and unlike the other two who avoided the man by walking around him, this man actually goes up to him. He went to him. What did he do next? And he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal. This Samaritan decides, I'm going to walk and I'm going to put this man on my animal so he doesn't have to walk. And what does he do next? 
and brought him to an inn and took care of him. He cares for him. He binds up his wounds and cares for him and pays for it all. But that's not all. Look at verse 35. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. The love and care of the Samaritan for the stranger is absolutely astounding and lavish. He covers everything to help this dying man that he does not know. Oh, here in this parable is a display of neighborly love. Here is someone who has loved his neighbor as himself. Here is how love of God should work itself out in love of neighbor, in the lives of his people, as they love their neighbors as themselves, no matter who they are, no matter who they are. So after this parable, Jesus asks a question. Look at verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Jesus redirects the man's question, right? The right question is not, who is my neighbor? But the right question is, what kind of neighbor am I? Right? The right question is not, who is my neighbor? But what kind of neighbor am I? Because in this parable, Jesus is clear. There is no such thing as a non-neighbor, Right? There's no such thing as a non-neighbor. Every person made in the very image of God is our neighbor, no matter who they are, no matter the cultural baggage involved in it. Even our enemies are our very neighbors that we are called to love. So Jesus asks, who proved to be the good neighbor lawyer? See the, the lawyer's answer in verse 37. He said, the one who showed him mercy. You know, this, the lawyer doesn't even want to mention who the man is. He doesn't even want to mention it's the Samaritan, Jesus. He, he, he ignores that. He just says, you can imagine him mumbling it to Jesus because he doesn't want to say it. It's the man who showed him mercy. The one who showed him mercy, Jesus, is, is the one. And look at Jesus' response. And Jesus said to him, you, go and do likewise. Notice it's the same conclusion in both conversations, right? Verse 28, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. At verse 37, you go and do likewise. See, this parable is not primarily given to us to teach us how to live. That's how it's often used, right? Be the good Samaritan, right? Everyone, even our non-Christian friends, love this parable because it displays love of neighbor. But I want us to see that's the, not the main point why Jesus tells this parable. His main aim is not that you and I just become better people. No, that's not the main point. And I think that's not the main point because of the original question asked. you remember it? The question is not, how can I live right? The question is, how do I inherit eternal life? Right? What can I do to be saved? 
question revolves around eternal salvation and justification. So Jesus is actually using this parable as a mirror for this man, right? And, and as a mirror for us. He's holding it up in our face, and he's helping us see, this is what you must be, and this is everything you are not, right? That's what he wants us to see, that we have failed to love like this good Samaritan. So he tells the man, and he tells us, you think you love God? Do you even love your neighbor? like this man? Because if you did love God, you would love your neighbor as yourself no matter who they are. Brothers and sisters, we have failed to love our neighbors as ourselves. Sure, we might see glimpses of it, and praise God we do, even in the world, but isn't it so true that by nature we are a selfish people? Just think of children, just think of even your own children or children you know. Who do they naturally love? We like to say mommy and daddy, but sadly that's not the case. They love themselves, right? In our home we call it the me monster. You are being the me monster right now, right? But that doesn't change, does it, if we're honest? It doesn't just stop at childhood, it continues on, and it continues into high school, continues on into college, into work, it continues on in our families. We are so often found thinking about me. How can I serve myself best? How can I love myself in this moment? Not long, too long ago, I, I saw a hashtag online, and it was the hashtag, love your neighbor. It had been used 370,000 times. It's pretty good. 370,000 times. The hashtag love yourself was used 82.9 million times. 82.9 million times. That reveals something about us. Right? It reveals that we have failed to be the Good Samaritan, just like this lawyer. In fact, this will be clear in Jesus' condemnation of the Lord. If we read a little later, this is in Luke chapter 11, verse 46 to 52. Jesus condemns the Jewish lawyers. This is what Luke 11, 46 to 52 says. And he said, woe to you lawyers also. For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. They were righteous on the inside, but wicked on the inside. Right? They professed a love for God, but their lives displayed a love for self. Oh, I hope you see the foolishness of thinking that somehow we can justify ourselves. Right? The foolishness of trying to earn our own justification or earn our own salvation. Because Jesus is absolutely clear, we have failed. We have failed. We are not able to do these things and live. That's what Jesus wants this lawyer to know. Stop trusting in yourself, lawyer. See the folly of what you're trying to do. 
and come face to face with your need for me. After all, that's why Jesus came. We also read this in Luke 5.30. When asked by the Pharisees, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Oh, my non-Christian friend, do you understand what the law demands from you? He requires 100% perfection. Perfect love for God and perfect love for neighbor. And do you see that there is nothing you can do yourself to ever justify yourselves before God? Nothing you can do to make yourself righteous before him. Well, then, what is our hope? What is our hope if we've all failed miserably at the standard of God? That leads us to our third point, the transforming mercy of God. The transforming mercy of God. Praise God that there is a true good Samaritan. Praise God that there is a true good Samaritan. Now, for this lawyer... Right? And those around this conversation, they would have heard this parable right, and been challenged by their failure, right? challenged by their love of God, should evidence itself in love for neighbor, but it doesn't. They would have been challenged by that. However, for us, we have to read this parable also in the context of the book of Luke, right? in the context of the whole Bible. We can understand that this good Samaritan actually points forward to a true good Samaritan. See, in the story, we are not the good Samaritan. We are the naked man on the road. We are the one who is unable to save ourselves, ruined in our own sin, deserving God's very judgment for our rebellion against him. We are the ones left for dead unless someone rescues us. That's who we are. And yet, Jesus has seen our need. He has seen our need. He has had compassion on the needy, the downtrodden, the wicked, the sinners. He's had compassion on sinners like us, and he actually does something about it. He does something about it. He actually comes to the rescue of real sinners. And he does that by taking on humanity on himself the Son of God in the flesh, 100% God, 100% man, fully God and fully man. And he's the one who lives a perfect life. He's the one who lives the perfect life of loving God and loving neighbor. We see this over and over again in the Gospels, right? Jesus actually loves his neighbor. He shows compassion and he actually does something. He heals. He shows mercy over and over again. But ultimately, we see his compassion and love for God and neighbor at the cross. That is his ultimate display. It's at the cross of Jesus Christ where he binds our wounds and he heals us. And he pays the cost of it all. Right? Like the, the good Samaritan who says, I'll pay for it all. Jesus himself has done that. He came and said, I'm going to pay for it. What's the cost? It's not money. It's his very life. It's his very life. It was his life where he gave up his life for his people. 
because our sins, O church, demanded it. The justice of God required it. And so Jesus, out of compassion and love, paid for it all. And he dies the death that we deserved, and on the third day he rose from the dead. Brothers and sisters, do you see that the the demands of the law for perfection are fulfilled in Christ? That's how you and I can stand righteous before a holy God. It's because of what Jesus has done. So that anyone who trusts in Jesus, right, are now justified, declared righteous before God. Not because of anything that they've ever done, but because of the sole work of the Son. Oh, church, we can never be justified because of anything we've ever done, but only because of the sole work of the Son. Church, this is the good news. This is the good news. This is the answer to the question, how can we be saved? Not through our own righteousness, but only through King Jesus. This is the eternal life we receive through Christ. And brothers and sisters, that's not all that we see here. Because we see that the eternal life that we receive actually transforms us. See, the good news of Jesus isn't merely that you get forgiveness or that you get to be in heaven. No, it's that you're also changed. It's that Jesus' salvation actually changes us and transforms our very lives. Just think about the parable. What does the good Samaritan do? He restores the dying man. He doesn't just leave him. He restores him to full health. So it is with Jesus. He restores us to a perfect relationship with God. And he restores us in our innermost being, changing our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh that now actually love God and actually love neighbor. He makes us new. If you're not a follower of Christ and you're here, do you see this glorious news that's held up for you? Do you see this wonderful news of what Jesus has accomplished, that free forgiveness and a restored life is offered to you in him. Simply turn away from your sin and trust in him. Brothers and sisters, in our passage, Jesus, yes, is absolutely exposing our sin and our failure. But on a secondarily matter, he's actually calling us to actually love our neighbor as ourselves. That is a real call here. Jesus, at the same time here in this passage, is saying his people must live this way. Again, we have to get this clear. It's not because this saves us. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying live this way in order to be saved. No, he's saying my people must live this way because it evidences, it shows that we actually love God. Our love for neighbor actually evidences our love for God and that we have understood what it means to be saved and changed. It evidences life. It's also why Jesus would say, do this and you will live. He shows us, 
brothers and sisters, that our love for God must show itself in our love for one another. And the rest of the, the Bible is clear on this. Listen to 1 John 3, 15 to 18. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brothers in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Oh, I hope you see that it's only firstly found in Jesus that we could actually learn to love like the Good Samaritan. Right? It's Jesus' compassion and love towards us that actually empowers us to love those around us in the same exact way. Right? As we see Jesus as the ultimate true Good Samaritan for us, it empowers us to actually live like him. So, Grace, Sharjah, I wonder how have we reflected the very compassion and mercy of God? I wonder how have we limited our love and care for neighbors like this lawyer? In what ways, perhaps, have you been tempted to love and serve only a specific group of people in your life? Maybe it's only people you know. Maybe it's only Christians. Maybe it's only people who are like you. Maybe only those who are your age, your ethnicity, or your theology. Or maybe it's not necessarily only serving people like us, but it's cutting out a specific group of people, right? Whether that be ethnic, economic standing, hobbies, lifestyles, the list can go on and on in the ways that we choose what kind of neighbor are we to love. And yet here, brothers and sisters, we are called to love all as a display of the compassion of Christ. Right? Just as God has loved us and shown us compassion, we are called to love every kind of person around us. Tim Keller helpfully writes, we instinctively tend to limit for whom we exert ourselves. We do it for people like us and for people whom we like. Jesus will have none of that. By depicting a Samaritan helping a Jew, Jesus could not have found a more forceful way to say that anyone at all in need, regardless of race, politics, class, and religion, is your neighbor. Not everyone is your brother or sister in faith, but everyone is your neighbor, and you must love your neighbor. So what are some practical ways that we can love our neighbor? First, Two final applications for us. First, be on the lookout for those in need. Be on the lookout for those in need. Uh, I've been made aware of a sp couple specific needs, areas of need here at Grace. Uh, so, so here are those. First, if you're a member of Grace, consider serving in kids or youth ministry. Consider serving in kids or youth ministry. This is a wonderful way that you can meet that need. Right? And it's a wonderful way that you can love your members well and love the kids that God has brought into this church as you hold out the gospel and show compassion and kindness as you sacrifice time, effort, patience to love these children. Or if you're willing to learn and serve, serve on the sound team. 
serve on the sound team, none of which any of this gathering would be possible without anyone on the soundboard. It's not a glamorous place of service, but it is a needed place of service. So, so if you want to volunteer in any of those, please talk to Samson if you have any information you want to know about what does it look like to serve in those capacities. Contact Samson and he'd love to give you more information. But another way it means for, for us and you is it means just simply knowing the needs of the church, right? And it just simply means knowing one another. You can't know the needs of one another if you don't even know one another. So here are a few ways that you can know one another well, right? First, read the weekly emails from Grace Church. I must confess, I need to do better at this at reading my own church's weekly emails. But read those, right? Different prayer needs uh, and different needs are brought up in those emails. Plan once a week to actually take time, maybe in your morning devotionals, to pray through the needs of the church and to see what needs maybe you can meet. Second, prioritize your members' meetings. Prioritize your members' meetings. Plan to come to the members' meetings regularly. Don't avoid them, right? In these meetings, you do life together. You, you get to know ways that you can care for one another and serve one another, both spiritually and physically. Third, build relationships in the church. Build relationships in the church. Actually take the time to meet with one another. Brethren and sisters, it's hard to love one another well and serve one another well if you just see each other once a week when you gather on Sundays. No, loving one another involves actual sacrifice to get to know one another throughout the week, to call, to meet, to care. Make the effort to build deep, Christ-centered relationships. Invite people over for dinner. Have a potluck regularly with people, right? Meet one another after church in your homes or in the food court. Think through ways that you could simply get to know your members well. And fourth, get to know the visitors and people around you. Get to know the visitors and people around you. Our, our passage also means getting to know people around us. Not just church members of grace, but including those who are visiting. So think through even the way that you see the gathering of the church. Are you quick to just meet with people you know? Or are you also quick to get to know new faces? To ask them who they are, where they are, what they believe about Jesus, what brought them here. See that as an opportunity to get to know them and share the gospel and to love them well. But it also means, right, loving our neighbors, actual neighbors, and loving our coworkers well. It means actually taking time to get to know them and spending time with them to, to serve them well. Right? This means it's going to take effort. Right? It's hard to do these things. Right? But second, right, first is get to know the needs around you. Second, love and serve as you are able. Love and serve as you are able. Our compassion should lead us to actual action. Right, let's not be like the priest or the Levite who saw a need and just ignored it and walked around it. No, we must be moved to action. Now, these could be simple things, right? Such as giving people rides to church 
uh, at ECCD for a while, we had multiple members picking up uh, a group of guys from a, uh, a housing area nearby every week, often doing multiple trips, dropping, picking them up, dropping them off after church. Now we have a bus. But that's a way that these brothers saw a need and said, we'll meet that need. It, it could be planning to give to benevolence. Right, budgeting in your budget to, to give to benevolence and praying for your elders as they decide and plan to, to how to use that in order to serve God's people well here. Right? It could be making meals for those who are sick or, or those who have just given birth. It could be simply helping a family with chores or babysitting. If you, you're here and, and you're... Uh, uh, a single brother and sister, think through ways that you could serve the married couples in your church, right? If you're able to watch their kids while they go on a date night, that would be a wonderful way to serve them, right? Or even help anyone in the church who has needs in the home. If you're free, get to know them and meet them. It could be meeting a financial need, helping to pay for gas or groceries, the list can go on and on, can't we? we? We could be here all day thinking through the various needs because the needs are many in a church and in a city. But we must remember that serving those in need requires sacrifice, whether that be time, money, emotional energy. There's a cost to pay when we love those around us. However, Brothers and sisters, let us remember the cost that our Savior paid for us. Let us remember the cost that our Savior has paid for us. And as we remember that, let that be fuel for our lives to now live sacrificially toward those around us. Let us follow our Savior's example, not because it saves us, because Jesus is clear that we can't save ourselves, but because we have been transformed by the amazing mercy of God. Let us pray together. Father, what wonderful news we have in your word that despite our failure at loving you and loving our neighbor, that you have shown us mercy. It is a mercy that we do not deserve, and I pray that you would Lead us to greater praise of the Savior. And not only praise in our lives, but it would lead us to love as you have loved us. So give us eyes, eagerness to see the needs of those around us. And give us strength and grace to meet those needs as we are able. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.